today's solution should not become tomorrow's problems. For us, that's how we define sustainability. It's a, something with a much longer term horizon. Many times we try and solve a problem today, but that solution becomes a problem tomorrow. Welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode, we talk with someone who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this conversation, I spoke with Dilbag Gill, who is CEO of the Mahindra Formula E racing team since the sports inaugural season in 2014. Formula E is the single-seater motorsport championship for electric cars. As one of 10 founding teams and the only Indian team, Dilbag has built his team from the ground up, which has led to multiple race victories and podium finishes. He's always been a motorsport and mechanical enthusiast from repairing motorcycles while studying at college before going on to be an amateur rally driver in his younger years. He also has a background working for a startup that went on to develop software used in the FIFA World Cup. In this conversation, we talked about a different kind of race, the race to net zero emissions. In particular, we talked about the role that collaboration within teams and cooperation across teams plays in the development of the sport. We also talked about some of the plans and predictions for innovations that are being developed and their potential future impact. And lastly, building on what was said to be a make or break year for the climate emergency last year, we talked about what is being learnt within Formula E and Mahindra Racing that others can learn from. So I started out by asking him, what is Formula E and how and why did it start? Enjoy! So Formula E started eight years ago. I think uh, the purpose of Formula E essentially was to drive electric mobility. It was trying to like demonstrate that electric mobility is a genuine alternate in transportation choices which we are going to be making in the years to come. Essentially, it's helped manufacturers move technology faster. It's helped consumers see that this technology is viable. While it's just start to get you from A to B as a commute car, it essentially is quite exciting. It can be quite interesting. And there are genuine options. So I think that's essentially where Formula started from, is to try and rapidly improve technology. And that's one of the reasons why Mahindra got into this. We were already one of the world's oldest manufacturers of electric cars. So what thought was, okay, this is something which is going to help us in terms of like using the standard cliche race to road that, okay, like we will be able to understand this technology and then transfer it back. And I think motorsport helps us with that to a large extent because we have to develop a car every year in motorsport. So what we normally would have been doing in five to six years, we are compressing it to a year or year. And at the same time, it was also interesting for a company like Mahindra to start competing with some of the best technologies in the world and accelerate and bring our technology level to something what we think was the best in the world. So that, I think, was our personal interest. But at the same time, also going forward, like we were a brand which was quite well known in a very regional market. When I say regional malls, it was like India and the countries around India. We felt that okay, this could be an ideal platform to introduce us to the rest of the world in terms of technology, in terms of sustainability, etc. So putting both this together, I thought it was a pretty much, a, as you say, a no-brainer that found a time to get into Formula E. And today we are the oldest manufacturer in this championship. 
and I think one of maybe only two teams which has never sold a share. And that shows a commitment to what we are trying to do in this championship of Formula e. Formula One racing has always been a, a bit of kind of research and development space for the wider automotive sector. And so, so Formula E is, is taking that to the, the next level uh, by the sounds of it. I'm curious, how did you discover Formula E or did it discover you? I think Formula E discovered me rather than me discovering Formula E. So I was a part of the Mahindra group. Um, my career also, like I came into the Mahindra group through an acquisition. I had a small startup which was doing software for sport. Interestingly, the world's largest sporting event was run on our software. That was a FIFA World Cup. So I had project managed a FIFA World Cup, and I think I did more than 70 tournaments for FIFA. So this was like a backbone of running an event, like ticketing, accreditation, and even for the journalists, like 38,000 journalists in South Africa had to be accredited, etc. So that was all a part of volunteer management, travel, transport. So it's like running an event. So I knew how to run events, and I was really thinking. And I tried a bit of motorsport earlier in my life when I was 18 to 20. But again, like with many sports and especially motorsport, my enthusiasm was far ahead of my talent. So enthusiasm was there, talent was here. And motorsport can get very expensive when your talent doesn't keep up with your enthusiasm. So I sort of dropped it off, did other stuff in my life. And then on 20 odd years later, within the Mahindra group, an opportunity came up saying, okay, we are getting into Formula E. And I sort of stood up and said, can I have this job? I said, I don't know anything about it. But at the same time, I've always been an entrepreneur. So I've always liked startups. I've always been very comfortable getting into areas of discomfort in the sense where I don't know the industry. And this is something I had no clue about. But at the same time, I figured it, we will learn as we sort of go down. And that's how it's been the journey for the last couple of years. So I'm, I'm curious, what's the relationship between Formula One and Formula E? Is there a relationship? How can they learn from each other or, or inspire each other to go further, faster? There's a lot of similarities. Okay, They are car racing. There's a lot of the same drivers who have crossed over. Like people who have driven in Formula One have came over to Formula E and some Formula E drivers have sort of gone down to Formula One. So there's a crossover in terms of the talent which has sort of worked up. I think the main thing which sort of people take away from this is that racing can come in different formats. It doesn't have to be Formula One. And for us, I think we look at it, it's not an odd choice, it's an and choice. So a person who likes motorsport, Formula E is another form. Okay, when you're just looking at it from a motorsport perspective, we are a slightly different format. It's a more condensed format, like our racing is 45 minutes to one hour, while Formula One would be like an hour and a half, etc. spread over a three-day weekend. Ours gets over on a one-day thing. And I think the biggest difference is we race in city centers, which Formula One does in a couple like Singapore, or Monaco, etc. So for us, essentially, the race comes to you rather than you going to the race. So in most of the cities, you open up a window where you're staying and you might be able to see a race, which is happening in the streets just below you. Uh, from your apartment, etc. So for us, essentially, our whole USB is to bring a race to the city. And I think at the same time, while we race in the city street, it demonstrates the efficacy of electric vehicles, because that's the same street tomorrow, you're going to be driving your electric car, etc. And people do realize that this can be driven. At the same time, over the last like decade since Formula E has come up, Formula One also has moved around 30% to 35% electric. So they have the hybrid batteries, in it, etc. So it's moved towards a bit of a hybrid, even in terms of power, how it's given out. There's a combustion engine and an electric part of it. So we do see there's a little bit of where Formula One has moved towards this direction. Well, for us, we don't see us moving in the other direction of internal combustion at any point of time. But we do see that there could be alternate fuels other than battery fuel, like as a battery, as a fuel for the car. So there could be years down the line, we could be running on hydrogen or something else. So for us, I think our technology is going to be 
how an electric motor is going to be driven. Today it's driven by a battery. Tomorrow it could be hydrogen or some other technology, which we believe would have application in the road cars going forward. So I'm interested. I mean, sport is inherently a sort of competitive activity. You know, one there's there are literally winners and losers. But you know, the shift towards the race towards net zero will have to be a collaborative activity where where we move whole societies and whole industries and whole sectors towards a more sustainable mode of working. I'm just wondering what we can learn from the way that Formula E operates in terms of the the collaboration that happens within teams to develop new technology, or maybe the cooperation across teams to sort of push forward sort of new technologies or or new ways of working. Is there anything we can learn from the, the competitive and the collaborative way that Formula E operates that others can learn from? I think definitely there is something which sort of came across on this journey in terms of learning about sustainability. So we all came into the series eight years ago when it started to be competitors in the motorsports series. We did not sort of initiate that point of time sign off saying that, okay, we wanted to be champions of sustainability or et cetera. First was initially, we're getting to motorsports series. We want it to be a pure racing competition and try and do as well as we can in the racing competition. Once we started there, we said, okay, how can we do it a bit in a better way? And that's where I think the sustainability story sort of came to us. And I think I would say for, for us, like, doing good, which became a purpose and attitude and a way of life, would have started, I think, three years into our journey when we sort of realized, okay, while we do have this footprint around the world as you go around in Formula E, can we keep it as a, as light as a footprint as possible? Like, if we knew, okay, there is an impact and, like, yeah, in a perfect world, we should all be staying at home. Okay, that would be the smallest impact. We don't need to be sending cars around the world, flying cars around the world for racing, setting up stuff, etc. But at the same time, I think the message right now is more important then where we can sort of talk about, okay, this is technology, which makes an impact, but not only the impact in terms of the cars, it's how we transport these cars. How are we taking our people around the world? What are we using? So we started going into those details. And I think for me, it, it was in season three at a race. It suddenly struck me, okay, because we are, as I said, in a competitive spirit world. And after the event was over, I started collecting empty water bottles in our garage single-serve plastic bottles. And I think that weekend, we have around 34 to 35 people who travel for events. I put away more than 600 plastic bottles. And many of them had a little bit of water still in it or like empty or stuff. And I said, come on, like within a small team like us, if I'm putting 600 off in one race and we do 10 odd races, we have like 6,000 odd bottles coming out from our end itself. Can't we do anything better? And that was where the sort of spark sort of came up and said, let's start researching in terms of making, okay, I, I need to keep our team hydrated. I need to keep our team sort of ready, but can't we do it in a better way than having bottles where people have a couple of sips, they leave it in the desk, they run to something else and they forget, okay, that this was my bottle because all of them look alike in terms of, okay, they come back and pick up another one and they start consuming that and you still have a bit left over. So I think that's where it started talking to a couple of my colleagues and said, where can we start improving on this journey? So the first thing we started said, okay, let's start researching a little bit on single-use plastics. Can we reduce it? Then we sort of, the bug sort of uh, came in and he said, okay, what else can we do? The next thing was freight. 75% of our carbon emissions is on freight when we ship our cars around. So uh, my next goal within the thing was, I said, within our group in Formula E, I would like our team to have the lowest freight impact. So let's do something in our control to start reducing it. And once we started reducing ours, we started pushing our colleagues, saying, that, okay, guys, if we can travel with eight tons, for example, of freight around the world, there's no reason why you should. And people started observing it and they felt, yes, it was something useful. So 
the entire freight gamut of our championship started coming down. Like I think earlier, sometimes we had to charter three planes and now we can sort of do it in two. So there was a significant amount in terms of reduction of there in terms of then the next we started looking at okay, we said, okay, we, we're not gonna win this war tonight. It's a journey, sustainability. We have to first of all, we have to learn what sustainability means. So we uh, Roland, we did a small exercise internally. I just called my colleagues, I gave them a blank sheet of paper. I said, just define sustainability. And it was quite interesting that I think we were six or seven of us, and each of us wrote a definition of sustainability quite different. And I think that was the first another point is okay, how do we define sustainability? If it meant something different for each of us. There was not one sort of standard in terms of definition. Can you say a bit more? What were some of the different definitions? Can you remember? Uh, let me try like, uh, and sort of go ahead. I think like, like people okay, talked about sustainability. I think one was, okay, what's my carbon impact, my, my personal car- carbon impact? Can I consume less? Is it consumption? Like, there was a relationship between consumption and sustainability. The more I consume, the less sustainable I am. Okay. The there were like uh, questions in terms of okay, not only my like in terms of okay plastics. Then there was a lot of thing. Okay, let me start reducing my uh, usage of plastic. Let go to go shopping. Let me have recycled bags and stuff. So there were like small little bits, but there was not one sort of standard answer which you could pick up and say okay, this is. So then we went and borrowed an a statement which we still sort of use. It's a statement we said that today's solutions should not become tomorrow's problems. For us, that's how we define sustainability. It's a, something with a much longer term horizon. Many times we try and solve a problem today, but that solution becomes a problem tomorrow. And I think for ease of uh, the conversation that was plastics. 40 years ago, plastics was the solution for everything. And today it's become a problem. So it's like when we're talking about uh, like sustainability, we have to be talking about generations. We're not talking about years and days. So it's small steps. And that's where we said, okay, let's start making small steps. And small steps within the organization many times becomes habits. And habits are something that you take on to your personal life also. And that's where the influence sort of comes on sustainability. It's like what we do at work can impact at home. And what you do at home can start impacting at work. And I think once they both start merging, because you can't be just sustainable at home and not be sustainable at work. If you look at it from a lifestyle perspective, it needs sort of combine both. And then that's where we started this journey in terms of trying to learn. And I think we are still very early in a journey of learning. So we looked around at Mahindra and said, what are the various standards around the world? Let's try and achieve some of them. Because whenever we try and achieve a standard, which is a recognized standard, it helps us learn a little bit more about it. So one was with FIA, the, the, what they call the three-star sustainability, which is the highest from FIA, which is a motorsport governing body. We were the second motorsport team in the world to get it and the first in Formula E. Then we said, okay, let's go try ISO 14001 2015 because ISO is a known standard across industry. It doesn't have to be just thing. So let's go set up our EMS, went and got that done. Then we said, okay, let's try and work with certain organizations towards net carbon zero. Worked and I think we are the first and only motorsport team which is net carbon zero since inception. So there were like different standards we started working towards. Then we sort of pledged to the United Nations standards for uh, climate control, and I know it's UNFCCC. I don't know the full form of that at this point of time in terms of uh, that acronym. But last but not the least, we also felt, okay, let's take up certain initiatives which are related to the sport, which can give us a small competitive advantage, but at the same time talks about sustainability. And Formula E is quite unique because we have something called Fan Boost, where fans can vote for their best or favorite driver. And the top five drivers 
who get the votes per race get a little bit of more energy during the race. So they get a bit more energy. So in terms of a battery power, so that gives them either one extra overtake or something like that in the race. So we said, okay, how do we make this a, where we can link it to fan boost? So what we went out two years ago, we said is, we will plant a tree for every fan boost vote we get. So over the year, we got slightly under a million votes. We, we, we have gone and planted a million trees in South of India in a pretty degraded area where we had to sort of bring back, uh, uh, rejuvenate the area in terms of soil, etc. And I'm happy like two years later, around 83% of our plantings are still alive. So like, uh, think, okay, like we've lost 17% of the million trees which you sort of put out there. But the main thing which we did differently with, the, with our tree planting was we basically planted something what we call cash crops. So it was like fruit trees, or a, like a tree which could harvest a crop. So that became a motivation for the local community to take care of this forest. Because in the end, either it gave them like fruits like oranges and stuff like that, or pepper or cardamom and stuff like that. So in the end of it, it became a livelihood for them. And so Mahindra has planted nearly 23 million trees in that area, which Mahindra Racing has done a million. So this has become a huge impact on the community which is a very rural community a part of India, we said, okay, when you're planting trees, it's just not going to be uh, a normal, uh, like let's just say a pine or an oak tree or something, but let's find something which can actually give a crop. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a different type of sustainability, isn't it? A kind of financial sustainability to that local community. But so I was kind of curious about um, how adhering to those standards or picking up those plastic bottles, how that gives you a, a competitive advantage in the race. Of course, those are good things to do, but they don't necessarily directly help you win the race. But it sounds like this fan boost is actually quite a clever mechanism to reward you uh, also in race terms. Is that Would you agree with that statement? Absolutely, Roland. So see, for us, like, the other, we looked at it the other way. Okay, If I do this, it didn't harm my racing. So picking up, like removing single-use plastic, single-serve plastic, it didn't, didn't make my cars go any slower. If I improved, like uh, removed some freight which is unnecessary and looked at it, it didn't make our cars go slower. So, okay, we obviously, we want our cars to be fast. We want to be competitive. So we also look at it, if do any of these processes impact our folks? And our folks said, no, it doesn't impact us. Having a hydration station, giving uh, everyone a, a, a good bar, reusable water bottle which they could go fill in from a central hydration station didn't really impact folks okay and so they, we said okay let's go do it so we had actually some bit of analysis done okay what all we're trying to do you know is going to impact so the other question which we try and worked on was how much how many rental cars do we need to use in a city we are racing in a city center so i said okay fine we are going to try and use public transport or even walk if there's a hotel so that did impact us slightly because our budgets had to go up a little bit to find a, the closest hotel to the racetrack. It may not have been the cheapest, but we said, okay, that's something which we would like to do. Then the next bit was, okay, when we travel, we, we know, okay, travel is one of the things. That's why we are in racing. We, are, we have to travel. It's necessary. But let's travel as minimum as possible. Let's travel using maybe modes of transport, which are slightly more efficient. And if there's a choice, like which aircraft can I go on an aircraft which emits slightly, uh, which has lower emissions compared to another aircraft while maybe the ticket might be slightly higher. So there was certain cost benefit ratios, but in the sense, we've always tried to sort of lean towards where it's more environmentally friendly, if, uh, no, while it's at the same time doesn't break the budget totally. So that's where the small, sort of smaller steps which we try to make.
you said earlier that Mahindra Racing is the only team in Formula E that's been net zero since inception. How green is Formula E really? How can you justify the involvement of someone like Shell? And how do you uh, make the case for genuinely being net zero since since inception? What we've done is that we we have sort of calculated our impact in terms of like what we're trying to do it's in our supply chain. So it's not only at the racing team, but our major suppliers also in terms of, okay, how are these cars produced? What is being consumed to produce these cars? Okay, what's the type of energy? What's the quality of energy which has sort of gone into producing these vehicles? First and foremost, we've tried and looked at, is there any a better and a more efficient process to do it, uh, incorporate that. After that, we've looked at, okay, this is what has been sort of generated by us in terms of potential emissions, etc. Then we've gone and looked at projects where we can start offsetting that amount so that's the journey sort of which we have sort of taken and we've sort of gone back in terms of again looked at our offices okay our consumption within our offices in our travels in the production of our cars getting to work from home that's also been like calculated so for us uh right now we do have i think we may be one of the only organizations which has an we encourage only an all-electric policy to come to work so right from an electric bicycle to an electric car and we provide free for what we call fuel in the organization to charge your vehicle so there is charging stations provided by the company etc so we even look at how are you and i commuting to work as a part of of our journey we worked with an organization and this year when we are trying to do our calculations in terms of what has our impact been we are looking at doing a 2x in terms of what we can contribute back in a project so we are in a way trying to look at can i contribute a few more credits than what i've consumed in terms of where we are looking at then coming back to Shell, I think that's an interesting one because, see, as we all realize, we are consumers of Shell products around the world. Each of us, in some form or the other, okay, have consumed a Shell product. It could be a, a fuel which has gone into a car or it could be a fuel or a petroleum derivative product which has come in. Our focus in the, essentially is, okay, going towards electric mobility. Can we work with Shell to create lubricants for the electric car industry? Can you work towards creating uh, what we call greases? Because he, are first and foremost the formula technology is very different from conventional cars okay when you talk about a petrol car you're talking about an engine rpm of around maybe up to the maximum of around seven to eight thousand rpm in electric mobility we are our cars are spinning at around thirty thousand rpm so even the type of fluid which is in your gearbox is quite different and here literally as we call it from an engineering terms we are churning losses through our gearbox because as the thing is swishing around your gears in the lubricant needs so we worked we said okay let's work with shell to try and derive lubricants which are going to be part of it. Because Shell is moving towards becoming a supplier to the electric vehicle industry also. And we felt, okay, this partnership could help us accelerate the movement of Shell towards in that direction. So for us, I think it's a great partnership because, yes, they do have convention industry, but they are also pivoting. And maybe I may not be most popular to say this, but sustainability for me is not an on-off switch. I can't sort of decide this morning, okay, I'm, I'm sort of going off the grid, I'm switching off. Thing. It's a journey. Okay, now it's it's a journey which has no finish line. But at the same time, it doesn't mean we cannot go faster. And I think that's where we are here, is try to help us go faster on this journey, which we don't see a finish line yet. Okay, but we're moving in that direction. And I think that's a part of a relationship. So with Shell, we are working also on a project in India called Reimagining Energy in India, where we are trying to work towards setting up uh, electric charging stations, etc. So our relationship with Shell is largely towards their pivot towards electric mobility. And that's where we're sort of working together to encourage and move in a journey where we can have solutions 
for electric mobility. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. It's a journey and yeah, it's a race you, you almost can't win or there's not a finish line in quite the same way as there is in Formula E. I think what I like about what you're doing, one of the things I like about what you're doing is it's very much focused on winning the race, but finding more sustainable ways of getting there is very important, but kind of secondary supporting kind of objective, often with kind of net zero sustainability activities. That is the guiding purpose for an activity, but that alone doesn't always sustain an activity, uh, you know, beyond an initial kind of period of time. So I don't know, I just think there's something interesting in what you're doing that others can learn from. It feels, seems to me like there's been a real tipping point, certainly in the UK, and I know in countries like Norway are much further ahead. What do you think are some of the key factors that have contributed to that? I think for me, the tipping point is pretty simple. Today, an electric car has become a genuine alternate when you have to go buy a vehicle. It's, there's no compromise you're making literally when you're buying an electric car. Okay, when you look at a, like maybe a petrol, diesel, or an electric, they're all equivalent in terms of uh, things. So you're not sort of doing a trade-off and saying, okay, I'm, I am sort of putting a stake in the ground to go electric, and this is going to be my compromise on thing like that. You're literally not doing today in terms of like technology, which you see, like, okay, the range is there, the price points are coming in, etc. Or uh, thing, uh, you're charging infrastructure is improving. So once it becomes a genuine choice, which you can make, I think we've achieved half a goal out there in terms of it. Okay, when a person goes to a showroom and you go into a BMW showroom and you say, okay, let me look at all the cars and you say, oh, well, electric makes sense for me and I can buy an electric. If you've gone in without your mind already set uh, for, towards electric. And I think that's something which we have seen a huge in the United States with Tesla has done a, done a fantastic job about it. And then you go back and you see, okay, um, I've just been following Ford of recent and I must give them also a lot of credit in terms of the the best selling vehicle, I think, for the last 25 years has been the Ford pickup truck, the F-150. Now that's going towards electric. And I think the initial, uh, they looked at making 40,000 of those this year. That's gone up to 160,000. It's just because the bookings for that particular car has been so crazy that there is consumers. So I think the market, like which people would assume, okay, the, like a pickup truck market might be one of the last because they are, uh, no, this is a part of, uh, typically a pickup truck is a part of your job. It's, it's, it's a workhorse, which it's not a lifestyle vehicle to a large extent. It's a part of your thing because you're earning money. You're either a contractor or you're self-employed, someone who's taking stuff. And people started moving towards electric then. And I think, oh, wow, this is something huge. When people start driving electric, it's a lot more of a stress-free drive compared to some of the other vehicles. And this is coming from people like us who have been diehard motorsport fans who never believed in our lifetimes we'll be doing anything other than maybe uh, no, uh, like driving a high-end petrol car. And so, so I think from that perspective, it's quite interesting. India is slightly behind in terms of technology, okay, but I see that rapidly changing right now. So we see this decade, 2020 to 2030, is a decade of electric mobility. Um, we at Mahindra are initially focusing on commercial before we go to passenger. And I think for us, largely it's on the what we call the last last mile mobility. So it's a delivery like for the Amazons and the food guys and stuff like that. So in our cities, and when we look at it. In, in India, for example, we talk about pollution from, we have to look at it from a two, two-pronged perspective because for us, many times in the Western world, when you talk about like electric mobility, we are talking about environment pollution in terms of okay, air emissions, etc. But in a country like India, we, where we are running old diesel vehicles, noise is also huge pollution. 
okay, just think of those loud driving tuk-tuks going around town and or a bus with like clanking gears and stuff like that, like a whole old diesel bus. Okay, one, it's spewing emission. At the same time, also sound. And in congested cities like where you're living in India, just think about the amount of sound pollution which you can get rid of also through electric. So it's not only emissions, it's also sound. And I think we have to, we have to keep that also in mind. It makes the, a huge improvement in quality of life. We at Mahindra right now do a lot of work around electric tuk-tuks, uh, like small electric vehicles, etc. in terms of delivery. And I think that's an area because that we think is adoption is going to be faster and at the same time working towards uh, passenger vehicles where the Formula team is quite involved. So the global design center for all our electric vehicles worldwide is in the same campus where we are based out of in the UK. Mm, that's fascinating. I interviewed uh, a guy called Benjamin de la Pena for this podcast about a year ago. Um, he's based in Seattle and he um, uh, he's done a lot of work on informal transportation, which is basically uh, not managed by government's kind of transport, especially in places like India or, or, or Thailand with tuk-tuks. And um, he's got some fascinating statistics that in in many parts of the world, sort of 70, 80 percent of the transport around cities is is classed as informal. So it's kind of not private transportation and it's not kind of managed by kind of government operators. And so if you can make a dent in, in that world, um, that uh, can have a huge transformative effect. And I totally uh, agree with you about the noise pollution that hadn't occurred to me. But I'm uh, uh, for me, uh, I yeah, when there's noisy environments, that that drives me personally slightly crazy. So if if you can sort of take things down a few decibels, that's uh, that's uh, a huge benefit as well to the livability um, uh, and sustainability of, of places and cities. Um, so I'm conscious of time. We don't have too long left. I, I want to be respectful of your time, especially how early in the morning it is for you. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so uh, last year in the UK, uh, we hosted, oh, actually, sorry, uh, just one quick question. I presume with COVID, um, there has been no racing for 18 months. Is that correct? Or how have you been able to navigate the, the pandemic? And how has that affected uh, the world of Formula? To, for us, to a large extent, racing did not stop. So we, we, we have continued racing around the world. Uh, there's been like with like with a lot of other sport, there's been a lot of protocol. We've we have raced uh, with no audiences. It's we've done stuff off television, but we've done with limited audiences. There's been a lot of uh, testing, etc., which has been going on. So at the same time, like yes, there have been breaks, slightly longer breaks than expected, but we have been racing. In fact, we our New Year starts of racing starts in two weeks' time from now. Where's the first race? It's in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. So we are like in two weeks from now we're going to be in Saudi Arabia racing there, and then. The circus starts all over again for this year. Yeah, yeah my, I guess my final main thing I wanted to ask you about is we spent two weeks in Glasgow in November last year for the big uh, climate change summit, COP26. And it was said that that was a make or break event for for the climate emergency. And um, it's probably subject of another podcast, but I felt the full spectrum of emotion from from hope and excitement to kind of fear and frustration and anger in that two-week period for different reasons. But I'm just kind of curious, how do you see what you're doing within a wider kind of global context? It's clearly a very global sport that you're operating within. How do you see the next sort of 10 years kind of playing out and, and our ability to navigate our way towards net zero? That's something which we've been thinking about. And I said, like, we are students of sustainability. We're not experts. We're trying to learn. Okay, like our main business is still motorsport. We're trying to learn out here. So... Uh, and what we can do. But at the same time, I've also taken a bit of a view, unfortunately, that I can, will never look 10 years ahead because like, if I go back 10 years, would 
any of us expect that electric mobility has become the sort of the dominant is becoming one of the dominant forms of mobility out there okay technology changes so quickly and i think the, the pivot and i think this acceleration is just amazing so for me it's all already shorter thing but at the same time that goes against what i said earlier when i talk about sustainability we have to look at these don't become tomorrow's problems so i think for us it's trying to learn from experts like yourselves in terms of looking what are better practices so that's why we look at various standards we look at various industry standards and we say okay let's try and adhere to industry standards because that has been designed by certain experts so we like how we've done the fi three star uh, the on the ISO 14001 trying to go towards net carbon zero through with consultants to try and help us take us there and if uh, then you no know, we pledged to the UN FCCC for sport and uh, sports for climate action framework work towards that so we are trying to work on these journeys and i think for us it's a part of our for our education so i don't really have an answer in terms of where we are how we going to get to but at the same time i do have a belief that yes it's not that difficult for us to adhere to these standards and even being a motorsport team and typically we we do associate motorsport with um with a lot of negative things when i talk about sustainability okay like yes it's entertainment it gives people other benefits but at the same time in terms of when you look at it from a pure sustainability like does it make sense for like 500 people working on two cars which go around uh, like around spinning around around the world but i think what we're trying to do out here is small steps in terms of education i think that's where it's also uh, like helping us and helping what we'll have to go so for me i don't have an answer there i think we're still in a mode where conscious are okay let's make small steps let's make small changes in our own actions and i think that's where we are thank you dilbag i really liked what he said about today's solutions should not become tomorrow's problems i also liked the fact that he said that doing good doesn't make my cars go any slower in fact it may have helped him go faster via the fan boost mechanism that he talked about whereby they planted a million trees as cash crops for financial as well as environmental sustainability and lastly he talked about taking small steps that can lead to new habits you can check out the links in the episode description if you want to find out a bit more about Dilbag and the Mahindra Racing Team. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community. We couldn't produce this podcast without all of our community members, clients, partners and patrons. So many thanks to all of you. Please check out www.weareliminal.co to find out more. Lastly, please can we ask that you like and subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who might like it as well. Until next time, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye. Mm-hmm.